Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. At the Festival of Place, we brought together developers, designers, cities, local authorities, investors, and planners to discuss what makes places that thrive. Over the next few weeks, we'll be posting some of the speeches and panel discussions. Hopefully, we'll see you at the festival next year, which takes place at Tobacco Dock in East London on the 7th of July. In this podcast, you'll hear a conversation on stage at the festival between Sir Stuart Lipton and Giles Berry. Lipton was one of the first developers to seize upon the value of placemaking to office development. And here he discusses the future of the workplace. So I came across um, public space at Cutler's Gardens, the former PLA warehouses known as the treasure house of the city, five acres just off uh, Bishopsgate and Houndsditch, completely forgotten, locked up. And in uh, 1975, the PLA decided that they could relinquish this warehouse. Uh, It had been used before as a store for feathers, extremely valuable, cigars, wines, everything valuable, a big wall around it. And um, the site was sold to a Jack Walker for 25 million by the PLA. He didn't complete the purchase. And in 1978, with Standard Life, we were able to buy this site for 5 million, not 25 million. Um, five acres for five million. Those of you, and I can see a few friends sitting in the audience, would know that was quite a good deal. So it enabled us to do quite a good job. So, uh, Giles, we need to go back a step, uh, a bit more, to look what it was. So if you look at these images, this is what we started with. Uh, Famous architecture. The planning consent was described by Marcus Binney as taking a razor to a Rembrandt. Um, But you can judge for yourself. So flipping on to what we ended up with, a master plan produced, that was the fifth master plan produced by Mr. Seifert, who one inherited in those days because of the ODP system, and uh, maintains the courtyards. So this is my first introduction to public space reinventing the courtyard. You can see on the left the original courtyard, but more courtyards. And then the next one. That's how it looks. Pretty well looks like that today. It's kept very well. It's changed hands. Um, But it's the public space that makes it, in my view. Uh, On we go to the next. And then to a much greater challenge. How do you take a 400-acre refuse dump and turn that into uh, 2 million square feet of business park, golf golf course, equestrian trails, uh, all sorts of other activities. So we take it, you can see some of these illustrations, 30 feet of refuse, underground fires from methane on site to a foster building, Uh, Arab buildings. So another example of public space. The buildings were modest, but the public space was terrific. Look at it now, um, 30 plus years later, it's even better.
So on the left, bottom left, is how we inherited the site as a car park and Broad Street Station and two stations at Liverpool Street with different concourse endings. So a new master plan. The essence of the master plan for phase one on the top was to create buildings round the square, public space. The rotunda at the time questioned by friends in the agency world who are looking after British Rail, who are our partners, why on earth would you want to put up a stone screen? That'll get in everybody's way. Uh, what will you use it for? So below this is a double height car park and truck access. So we couldn't put many trees, but we replaced it with a public space and ice rink, which is now gone. One of the problems that we came across was as soon as tenants started moving in, the chief execs all complained about the noise at lunchtime. Too much noise from too many people. Who were the people? They were their employees having a good time. So there are paradoxes in these conversations. And um, we have to, I think, take people with us on this journey. Um, I was a fundraiser for the RIBA and um, on the 150th anniversary, and um, Prince Charles made a comment about this project saying the Luftwaffe would have done a better job. Um, <laughs> not this particular previous project. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, we were involved in that. It was our scheme by Arab Associates, Peter Foggo, same architect as, as Broadgate, a brilliant unknown man. Um, Pater Noster came out of uh, an idea we had of involving William Whitfield, the surveyor to the fabric of the cathedral, in our, as our master plan, as our master plan, and saying, how can we show a clear delineation between the cathedral, which we all respected, and a commercial development? So William had the idea of creating a big piazza in front of the cathedral on the northern side with a series of buildings. And um, that has been, uh, I think, a very successful public space. Stratford City, um, as a result of the beauty contest, um, when I was at Stanhope, we won this project with Chelsfield. Um, the site had been railway, HS1, the Channel Tunnel link, came through. We tried to persuade HS1 that it should move its tracks closer to the existing Stratford Central Line station, but they were adamant it couldn't be done. Um, the site had a water table problem, so the fill from the tunnel digging went onto the site, raised the site by six meters, and we started with the idea of from LCR that this should be a three million square foot project around a shopping center. The end result was consent for 14 million square feet uh, in the remarkably short period of four years for a planning consent. That was a record at the time. Um, with mixed use, uh, there was then a shareholder fight between two of the shareholders Westfield won, 
and more or less built out the shopping center as was conceived, uh, did a pretty good job. Um, and the Olympic Village adjoins. Uh, we gave the kit to the Olympics for one pound, the planning strategy. And I should think this will end up at not 14 million square feet, but 30, 40 million square feet. Um, again, good public spaces, uh, which the Olympics, with David Higgins, really went on to uh, achieve. So you don't win them all, but a good project. I think you all know what that is. More Olympics, keep going, Giles. This was omitted, which was, this was a feature by, uh, designed by West 8 Landscape, which personally I think would have been a really significant, but this was a cost-saving removal, which is a pity. Chiswick Park, 33-acre um, bus station. You used to be able to drive a bus on a skid pan here, if anybody would dare to do that. No idea. Um, to Richard Rogers designed two million square feet of what I call the reinvention of the Georgian villa, i.e. the strategy was all the buildings should be the same so that value passed from the end of the site at the top to the bottom, which is the entryway, so that all buildings had value. And in the middle, a one-acre sports activity and this, to me, um, probably, in terms of place, the most interesting. Five-acre park in the middle. Cars go around the outside. Um, kids from the local housing sites on the other side like sitting by the waterfall, which was a change of level. Um, very successful project with a very important uh, heading of enjoy work the realization that people are best motivated if they are enjoying what they're doing in an environment which they find uplifting and, dare I say it, fun. Has anybody used the word fun today? <laughs> Any, seriously, has anybody heard the one for fun? Was, was it mentioned? So I'm afraid session one fails for me because <laughs> the word fun... <laughs> Sorry? Well, I, I, I'm really serious about fun. Uh, when we played, <laughs> because um, apart from the odd prank, which I like doing, if we are having fun, we feel better. And if I read today's newspaper, I've checked the Times this morning, I can't find the word fun. So this, for me, is an absolutely uh, deciding factor in the failure of our planning system. It isn't, it isn't designed for people to be motivated, to be healthy, to have enjoy themselves, to be educated. It's a complete process. So Chiswick Park, you can have a guitar lesson, go to a stress session, you can have some education. And uh, this was sold eventually to Blackstone, who, who continue the theme. But it's really significant that if you're motivated, your engagement in a building might improve from the typical number of 30% up to 40 or 50%. And in an era where 
I'd like to, a show of hands if you would. Um, what time did your work start today? I have a pretty good idea. So did anybody look at their phone within 10 minutes of waking up? I'm just looking for those that didn't. Because <laughs> typically, 90% um, of people look at their phone within 10 minutes. And their phone is work. So what I'm trying to say is that we as developers have a responsibility to produce what the government doesn't produce. We used to have civic spaces, civic buildings, civic activities, they are now gone. So we as the private sector have been given the responsibility of doing everything. If the government could make us do uh, operations and uh, hospital A&E, I'm sure they would, <laughs> but they currently make us do housing, contribute to education through 106, we do infrastructure, we do anything they can screw us into doing, and none of us complain. It's quite miraculous that we just go on doing it, because we're weak as a, as a group. We never act together, despite the good offices of various organizations, but we just take it. And then people complain about poor quality, poor design, the planning process. So at Chiswick, no compromises. Richard Rogers is not a man to compromise. And um, you can produce that environment. Uh, here is Renzo Piano, Richard's effective brother. They're partners together in, in the middle of what was known as a very derelict poor area behind Charing Cross Road, almost close to, almost next to Centre Point. And Renzo came along and said, public space, whatever the building is, will not uh, influence people in the same way as public space. So great public spaces. If anybody knows this project, great colors. Is there another shot of it? So when Renzo was asked to justify these colors, he just pointed his hands up and said, I think they're wonderful colors. So to me, this all culminates in 22 Bishopsgate, um, a failed project which had been built to uh, the ninth floor of the core. It failed for some years. Developer ran out of money. With Karen Cook at PLP, we came along and said, we can do a much more efficient building, a uh, more effective building, but above all, a building for people. So this lives in the family of Broadgate and in Angelic Park. And with the help of Despina Kachakakis, who some of you may know, who is very young, but I've worked with her for 30 years. We, together with Karen, dreamed up a way of introducing public space into the building. So as you come into the lobby, we had the idea of thinking, how can we engage people again? So we haven't got much public space. We have a small courtyard at the back. Um, so rather than have a village, um, as one does at Chiswick, a vertical village. So come into the entrance, and instead of stone on the walls and floor, you'll see stone on the floor, but art on the walls, which will change. Um, go onto floor two, have a coffee or restaurant uh, in the six restaurants. Go to floor seven, an innovation center, what's new in the city, what's new in tech. Floor 25, an unusual gym, so if any of, any of, of you fancy uh, 
climbing on the climbing wall, which is double height at 400 feet. It is on the inside face of a building, <laughs> not like the chap who climbed uh, yesterday on the outside face, but you can safely climb on the inside face. And an altitude room for those who are really keen on uh, long distance runners and want to have new knees. Um, and floor 41, a spa, library, floor 57, a club. These are all for people in the building. It's not that we don't want people outside the building, but towers, as you all know, are all about lift capacity. So this is a building designed at one person per eight square meters, 90 square feet, genuinely one per eight, 62 lifts. Um, and we worry about the capacity of the building, which is 12,000. So if 12,000 people plus their guests, another 25%, started to use these facilities, they'd be swamped. So initially, they will be in daytime for building occupants. Only at nighttime, the public will be able to come in. We suspect occupancy will be about 45% at any one time. I'm looking at this room, it's certainly probably less than 45%, but we typically know that buildings occupied around 45% of the time. So on that basis, we'll be able to let people in. Um, but what matters in 22, in Chiswick Park, in Broadgate, is our community. How can we engage the wider community, the local community, the building community, how can we make them feel they're in charge? Um, so typically, as developers, we build buildings for ourselves. I have personally always thought I should be a bad boy and build buildings for occupiers. And I'm looking at a friend in row three who may or may not want to put his hand up, David, who I think uh, <laughs> has built buildings for occupiers and shown, for instance, as it's nice to find a few uh, people who are looking to try and achieve the same. But when I look at Regent Street and what David did to it, making it a shopping street rather than a street with office entrances dominating as they used to, and putting the entrances in the side streets and making them private, it does show there are a few people of like mind. But there are not many of us who are mad, David because um, this is a touch of madness. So what I'm trying to say in all this is public space really engages the community. The community uh, really make projects. If you go to a party, there's nobody on the dance floor. Suddenly one couple goes on, and in a moment the dance floor is full. So we need people in our projects. We need them, as hopefully they do on the dance floor. We haven't got one at 22, but we might. Um, we need them to have fun. We need to have life. We need to have social awareness. We need to be aware of mental illness. We need to be aware of relaxation. And those days are long gone. But just to finish on this section, I still find it amazing when I go and see office buildings with people in pens. Um, we don't want to put animals in pens. We'd rather they were free range, but we're quite happy to put people in pens, in boxes. 
So um, I think we've got a long way to go in this strategy. Um, city corporation are very encouraging and helpful. Others are not so helpful because they don't see the benefits of public space. Uh, and all the myriad of regulation that goes with this. Um, I sometimes wonder how the external works industry has got hold of public space. The same paviors, the same details, the same restrictions, the same safety factors, as though every site is the same, all thoroughly boring, all using inferior materials, even when it's York stone, it's second rate. So I'd ask you all to think about rebelling uh, against the local authorities who claim they love public space. They have no love of it at all, really. It's just something which is a box-ticking exercise. So, Stuart, fantastic. And, and a great trot through and, uh, you know, almost one of our inventors of, of, of modern-day public space. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, then we want to hear your questions. So, you know, in future, how, how can we... Uh, how can places and buildings help solve things like society's ills? So I know you went up to Tottenham and worked on um, post-riots, what happened there. What, what's the responsibility of the built environment to that situation, or is it not really the developers and the architects and the contractors' business, do you think? So last speaker, was, you were talking about community. So why is it that I read most days of the week about high streets, um, dying when the fundamentals to me may be different to you of a high street uh, are that I would like to be able to, forgive me, pee and park. <laughs> um, but I can't. Nobody wants to make the investment in the reality of um, a high street. So if it's um, easy, relaxing, and people do use their cars. I mean, car use is way down. It's probably down 50% in London in terms of parking. But if we have no investment jars in our high streets, and apart from Kensington High Street, I'm not aware of any high street that's actually had any investment. If you arrive in a vehicle, why are you a criminal? The prime activity of the local authority is to fine you 50 pounds. That's what they want, because that's where they make money. They provide no amenity, no civic. Uh, typically, they've closed as many libraries as they can. And libraries don't have to have books. They can have e-readers, and they can be social centers. And why can't we go into a library and get a coffee for 50p rather than three pounds at Starbucks? So I'm trying to talk about the social facts which drive for me, me into public space and relating that to what I see absolute failure of governments of all colors in handling life, activity, fun in a high street. If one then looks at places like Tottenham who have neglected estates with no investment, with forgotten people, um, if you're anywhere from seven to 11, there's a very profitable business, I'm sure you know on local authority estates it's a kind of um, DHL delivery. Um, I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about, but it's only the biggest package is an envelope. So if you pass an envelope from a car 
to a flat, you get 100 pounds. Um, much better rate than DHL. <laughs> so with that kind of environment, there are gangs. We all know about gangs. And if you're not in one gang, you're in another gang. And if you are in one of those two gangs territory and you go to a third gang, possibly to look for a job, you're regarded as the enemy. So why our government and our mayor's office are unaware of this, I have no idea. They know about it because when we wrote a report for Tottenham of 150 pages, it was all in there. But this is all back, Giles, to the failure of society to care about this and back to your point about the community. We as citizens have lost our power and we need to get that power back so that we can uh, start looking at proper investment. And proper investment doesn't mean very costly buildings, it means well-designed buildings, it means well-designed spaces, grass is as cheap as it gets. So in Tottenham, all the um, gardens around the tower buildings were all fenced off. So what is the point of having green space if you can't use it? Why do we have parks where the budgets have been cut very substantially? Um, we used to have park keepers. They, they made uh, people behave. Um, but our society has lost its real drive in terms of public space. We have been subsumed by government into believing that we as citizens have no power. Um, only, as I say, the only place I'm aware of uh, that really is keen on public space is the city. Uh, Kensington and Chelsea did spend five million pounds on Kensington High Street and 30 million pounds on Exhibition Road. Um, and now I see public space all over London by little pieces of uh, road widening going on, millions being spent with um, the cartel who builds these public spaces, which is a cartel, I think. Um, and what they're all looking for is marshals, uh, concrete slabs, and granite curbs, rather than trees, flowers, and things to enjoy and even smile at. Um, so we have an absolute failure of the system. It's not uh, the planning officers. I think it's predominantly members who probably have good intentions but have no idea what creating public space is, the benefits of it in health terms. Famously in Hackney in Holly Street, there was an estate which was substantially rebuilt in 2000, visits to the local GP reduced by a third. So um, if one looks at public space and the impact of more activity, we know that savings in crime, health, and education will be vast. So 25 billion a year is spent on housing grant. Probably 50 billion a year is spent as a result of poor health, poor education, and crime. The numbers are all public numbers. Uh, you can look them up. It would seem that government should understand, but obviously it's not good at numbers. Um, so I would encourage you all to check these numbers yourself. And if we have better public space, we are going to have healthier people and more fun.
Great. I mean, that's what the Festival of Place is all about, uh, uh, I, I, I think. Who wants to ask Stuart a couple of questions? We've got one down at the front straight away here. Just microphone on its way. I feel properly vilified by what you've said because I've just, uh, I've, I've just ceased being a, a, a cabinet member of a local authority um, uh, with, with a view to planning and regeneration. So I, I shall take my ball and go home now. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> You may be in the minority and been well, this, I'm not. I'm not a London. You know, I wasn't from a London authority. I was a provincial authority uh, in Ashford in Kent. Um, but I think that the. I just want a point I would like to raise, and you, you, you've, you've touched upon it in in um, uh, in Tottenham is the sites that you've talked about, and I know we we're talking about work and uh, work and living together here have been largely brownfield sites which you've, you, you, you've regenerated and you've upgraded and you've brought communities together. But you touched upon high streets, and high streets are very close to my heart. I was part of the expert panel for, for, for Jake Berry. Um, we, we know that high streets are organic and that they are the place that if you drop the... If you drop the um, uh, stone into the pool of a town, any town, any urban environment, it spreads out from the town, from the high street outwards. Um, and we heard this morning that people become, become the place and it's linger and it's living that make them make the place. Whereas workspace is only as long as you stay in the workplace and you needn't actually do anything in that environment until you come out. So I suppose what I'm saying is, how do you reconcile the new developments, these, these almost self-contained developments as part of a larger environment? I think you're describing mixed use. Um, perhaps I'm wrong, but we have had um, for a long time monoculture spaces where the spaces above the shops were empty. Um, we had a shopping world which, um, if one looks at market towns, cathedral towns and university towns, had civic uh, amenities. They had theatres um, and church halls and what I just would, music, and that's all gone. So the ingredient reverted just to plain shopping. So one obvious area is bring grandma to the high street. Grandma would like to be, and I'm a grandpa, so um, grandma, if she's not in great health, would probably like some action. She wants to be able to smile too. So if she's on the high street living there, she's going to be near the shops, near people, and if there's somewhere to go that's interesting to her, she could well bring activity. The idea, though, of people living in towns has really been rejected. We've had low density, and we need high density in towns to revive them. Um, we need to demark, really, the difference between grandmas and grandsons who would like to live in high streets and parents who probably would like a house with a garden. And the planning system is not terribly helpful in looking at that. And it needs, I think, to be much more interventionist 
So in the 70s, we had CPOs, um, good ideas, uh, some, some wonderful successes, some awful failures of concrete jungles. But we need to debate these issues and get more people in. So one obvious thing which has happened is office buildings have moved out of the high street. They want their own communities. But why didn't we, and I'm guilty of this, why didn't we as a uh, spot that in 1920, Mr. Victor Gruen invented the out-of-town shopping center. So along comes Brent Cross, the first of the out-of-town shopping centers in 1970. And instead of attaching itself to one of the local communities, goes on its own planners. And you know, I, I have sympathy for them, said, well, we agree that. We, we don't want to destroy our town centers. So we've got to look at the history of these centers they did go off on a track. Then we had Office Park, Stockley Park. I'm guilty of that. On the other hand, Chiswick Park at the end of the high street. And the message to me is that governments um, and local governments are not in touch with wider issues. So um, you're bed blocking in a hospital. Why can't you move to a hotel with a little bit of nursing? You go from 500 pounds a night to 100 pounds a night. Out of that, you go into the high street. You have some fun. Um, why aren't retired people running the libraries? Why aren't, They are doing a lot of wonderful social work. But as a community, we're weak. We are not joined up. And we have local government being run by 30 government departments um, who are remote. And one size fits all. But I'm absolutely with you. Right, quick. Loads of questions, but we need to rattle. David, do you want to ask one here? Just on the last point that was made, the, the, the real crime um, over the last 25, 30 years across the country, this is not talking about central London now, but across the country, has been the way that the planning authorities have, have permitted on land that they and the county councils own retail parks, because the, the retail parks have been far more dangerous for the town centre. Um, and so, uh, and I spend part of my time on the on the south coast. So if you look at Chichester, Chichester, great town, wonderful space, fantastic, wrecked by the councils giving planning consent. But what I I don't think you were here to hear Patricia Darrington speak before um, uh, before you arrived, Stuart. My, so my question to you is because basically Patricia's presentation was developers can't be trusted, developers really are, are going to screw the most money they can possibly out of it, and, and, and uh, yeah. <laughs> principally that's what was said, and that one must really stay on top of them, uh, and there is this, um, in some areas, and Westminster City Council were great for a considerable period of time as an example of that, how does the development industry gain people like Patricia Darrington's confidence that they can actually deliver. Because for those of you who go into um, uh, Bond Street, when you see the improvements which won an NLA, NLA award last week uh, for the public realm there, that was entirely a private sector scheme um, promoted by the New West End Company. Um, how, do, how do we do as developers a better job are persuading people that we are actually able to deliver? A very relevant question, David. Uh, my only knowledge of how to do that 
is to show people other projects. Uh, ideally, the projects that you or I have done. Um, but if we were to look on the continent, we'd find a much better attitude to a combination of the, the two sectors. Uh, if I go to Belgium and look at housing, local shops, it's the new version of the town. Much, much denser, much better quality. Um, but I think that we as an industry are just too good at agreeing what the local authority says. We have a planning system uh, which I know that the, um, the planners themselves would like to see changed. It, it's too complex. Um, it doesn't invite the community's participation at the beginning of the process so they feel involved. Um, it becomes a battleground. And um, as to the shock of the new, well, that's very, very difficult. Um, I'm personally an eternal optimist, um, and I can't help but feel that more engagement. But, um, David, you and I have to be terrorists. We have to go and uh, have fairly strong views and demonstrate that good quality rather than individual styles. Quality, surely. Quality in the, in the public spaces, quality in the landscape, quality in the buildings, quality of thought. And it is a national problem. And it's got a long way to go. OK, one last question for Pat here. Off on that point, you talked also, Stuart, in your tour de force of your last however many years, um, about uniformity. And one of the reasons I've helped Christine to develop the developer and, and the Festival of Place is because I really wanted a platform to help educate people to think for themselves about what places look like and how to develop places. But in the cash-constrained world where people see something and copycat it and they think they're doing well, and you don't want to sort of contain that sort of enthusiasm for place, how do we encourage difference? How do we encourage innovation, um, whether that's in the public or the private sector, so we, we don't have grey marshals, flags all over the place, and something that looks the same, whether it's... Basingstoke or Basel? A simple idea, which I've tried but failed, but who knows. Um, I, we used to have red line consents. So the developer had confidence that he was going to get a permission. Uh, we now have volumetric consents. So uh, massing height and bulk. So we could change our system so that the land use and the massing height and bulk are agreed, but the design isn't. Leaving the design detail, the landscape, the public space to a later approval. So a very fast track through the first round and a much slower track with much more confidence that you, developer, have to show quality and you, local authority, have to be open-minded and work together. Um, otherwise, we're just going to continue on with very nice, attractive drawings which turn into rabbit hutches or um, future failures. 
change in the system. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you everyone for, um, for your contributions. I think that's been fascinating, a, a kind of vision for the future, but also a bit of a, uh, a, a, cry for, a cry for help and change going forward. So let's give Stuart a big round of applause. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.